I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we stop using technology to optimize human beings for the market and start optimizing technology for the human future, or even the present. It's not too late to make people a favored species. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, journalist and nation columnist Aaron Mate. By keeping our focus on things like Russiagate, we're taking our eye off of the actual existential issues. Aaron's going to break down Russiagate and challenge us with an alternative view of the story, as well as how red baiting has long been used to keep us divided and conquered. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I'm on tour with the Team Human book recording monologues from hotel rooms and all sorts of places. I'm in San Francisco this week, Boston, then London. Come out and find the others. Every appearance is listed on teamhuman.fm. And it's been a fascinating adventure so far. I'm getting massive and loving interest from people and real places, podcasts and independent journalists, but almost a deafening silence from institutional media. I know it's partly because they're all busy covering Trump and Roger Stone and, of course, Russiagate, while conveniently still ignoring stories like the coup in Venezuela, the dam disaster in Brazil, the anti-Kurd offensive in Turkey. Yes, all this is going on right now. The news and books are just not shocking enough to merit mainstream media attention unless they're bombshell tell-alls from former Trump staffers. Then, at least for me, all of a sudden, that Covington Catholic schoolboy MAGA hat versus Native American video hits the Twitterverse, and everyone wants me on. Finally, the hook! And it's an interesting little meme fest, of course, 
it's fun to dissect. It's really the story of what happens as you zoom out of a story from close up to medium long shot to the whole scene. So what at first looks like some MAGA kid menacing a Native American, it becomes a seasoned Native American activist setting up this Catholic schoolboy. And then eventually you pull back a little more and it reveals itself to be a Native American intervening in a conflict between black Israelites and this group of kids, So at least so far anyway. And it's a little troubling that my favorite news shows only want me on when it's to explain a sensationalist, social media-generated cultural fart. But what matters to me more is that so many of my friends, and worse, so many respected journalists, intellectuals, activists, and others, thought to tweet and retweet and comment on this story before they had any idea what was going on. They were not there. So yes, I saw the tweet in my feed from one of the people who retweeted the truncated version of the video spawned by some fake news account in Brazil. And I had a few really clever, nasty things to say myself about the apparent confrontation. But I took my own advice for once, and I did not respond. I took a breath, and I waited, and I didn't do what the platform is programmed to make me want to do. So I accepted the possibility that I was looking at a real video, and that there was a social injustice going on that needed to be called out, but that it could also nonetheless be fake news, that maybe I didn't really know from looking at a minute of video what was going on, that it might not be any more real than any of the stitched together reality on the tube right now. And that's what reality TV really is. We all know, right? They use real footage, but they cut it together to say whatever they want. It's why reacting to decontextualized pictures is so dangerous. If anything, we're living in a media landscape where whoever can most convincingly say what a picture really is, wins. Are those refugees? No, they're terrorists. No, actually they're rapists. Whoever names the meme wins the meme. That's why we can't respond to photos on a news feed. We can only react. This is raw footage. We're not there. It may be compelling to look at, particularly if it triggers our knowledge of real racism, oppression, and violence. But this is also why we have real journalists on the ground skilled at investigating a story and determining what happened so we don't have to rush to judgment and then amplify confusion. So what if I don't find out about what happened until an hour later? Instead of getting drawn into righteously indignant online substitutes for social justice activism, let's go out into the real world and fight the injustices we actually see all around us. And if we really want to work on problems occurring beyond our physical location, let's get the facts from professional journalists. Of course, come to think of it, professional journalists sometimes get it wrong, too. And that's perhaps the biggest concern of Nation columnist 
Aaron Mate, who's been arguing for a couple of years now that the Trump-Russia connection has been overblown by a news media too willing to accept the neoliberal line on, well, just about everything. It was Noam Chomsky who first explained how authorities create flack for journalists and activists they want to censor simply by calling them communists. It was a tried-and-true tactic of the right to quell the left. The labor activists, environmentalists, feminists were all red. Against the Gulf War? Red. But now, at least according to Mate, it's the left that's using Russia as the boogeyman to attack Trump ultimately distracting us from Trump's true crimes against humanity. There's a lot to digest here, and I'm not even sure how I feel myself about Mate's perspective. But what I do know for sure is that I'm in less of a position to judge the evidence than he is. So even if you don't agree with Aaron's assessment of Russiagate, I think there's a lot to learn about the structural biases of our media and how these dynamics shape our perceptions of world affairs. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. I'm Melissa Court, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ada Paris, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Astrid Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Mushan Zeraviv, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Steve Lambert, and I'm the designated hitter for Team Human. <laughs> You're on Team Human. Our guest today is Nation columnist Aaron Mate. Thanks for being here. I've known about your work for such a long time. I thought you'd be older, frankly. I knew you first from your work on Democracy Now. But was that like your first gig in the world? My first gig in the media world was, uh, I'm from Canada. And when there was a coup there in 2004, I went there and did some stuff. So, you know, but, but, but there my was first, a coup in Canada. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I totally screwed that up. There was a coup in Haiti, oh, okay. which Canada was involved in. All right. Yeah. Cause that, we didn't know, yeah. they didn't tell us about the coup. <laughs> sorry. I, I missed the where part. And All then right. I, and then I also worked for, I worked for Naomi Klein, who, you know, right. uh, for a couple of years as her researcher for the, around the time she was doing the shock doctrine. And then she helped get me the job at democracy now. And oh, so great. I was there for a long time. And then you were there, and then you did a, a you you've been doing the real news. Yeah, and then from there, I you know like I, I worked for Al Jazeera and Vice for a bit, and then I went to to the real news, which is kind of like a wannabe democracy now. Uh, and uh, and I did you know daily video uh, segments. They're interviewing people, and you know a big focus of mine has been RussiaGate, but you know just general lefty stuff. Yeah, and it's I mean I've been interested in your stuff for a long time, and then particularly now, you know I did a, a couple of monologues for this show that are also these little medium pieces that I, that I post and they've, they've tangentially hit on the Russia thing. Mm -hmm. So one of them was almost a joke piece, but it's serious about the, the Russian cosmists who came over in the seventies and eighties and went to Esalen and taught our fledgling little Silicon Valley people how to be a different kind of transhumanist new ager and all that. (laughs) And that didn't really get people upset. But then I, uh, uh, Marina Gorbis, who's been on the show, she runs Institute for the Future. She sent me a link to these three New York Times videos called uh, like Operation Infection. 
And she sent them to me largely because I've done a lot of work in memes and memetics and viral media and all that. And I did this report for them on viral media, not about, oh, look what Russia did, but more about how viral media works and why and how we should build up our cultural immune response as people rather than look to technology companies to somehow filter out dangerous memes through, you know? Yes. Algorithm. It's yes. like, oh, great. If we're if our if our minds are going to be saved by algorithms, we got another thing coming. <laughs> so I wrote this piece on those movies, which, which they really hit me in in that kind of Adam Curtis way mm-hmm. of like, yeah, Adam Curtis. For those who don't know, he did these movies called Century of the Self and a bunch of others. These really slightly conspiratorial, but they're really fun with the way they they pull together narratives. So these movies basically said, oh, look, you think that this Russian troll farm tweet maker thing is some new thing. This is old. It goes back to the 1980s and they've been spending all their time and energy. You know, 80% of their budget is Mm -hmm. towards creating conspiracy theories in America. And they look for these useful idiots like those radio guys. Who's that crazy radio guy with the conspiracy things? Um, Alex Jones. Right. Like Alex Jones and all that. Where Alex Jones up to Donald Trump say to spread these rumors like that AIDS was created in a government lab or all these things. And this is the latest study, and they used research, they used books like Media Virus to see how do we nest into the, uh, uh, what I used to call the, the incomplete or conflicting code in our cultural DNA mm-hmm. in order to nest a virus that will then replicate. And I got a bunch of responses from people saying, Doug, I can't believe you fell for the Russiagate thing. <laughs> and... I didn't know that I fell for the Russiagate thing. I didn't feel like I fell for the Russiagate thing, but I decided I would, you know, really pursue the people who are looking at uh, the the Russia story and who think maybe that it's a bit, you know, overblown. So, you know, obviously Glenn uh, um, Glenn Greenwald has been writing and speaking a lot about that and doing some good debates with people. And um, but he's a little extreme, and and I was like, well, yeah, but but but. And then I read um, Cohen from Princeton and say, like, yeah, but he's a little bit of an apologist for Putin and the Russians. And, all. and then I read your stuff in The Nation and I think, sort of like Mama Bear. Okay, <laughs> that porridge is just right. Um, so I'm hoping you can help kind of educate me and our, our listeners about kind of to help us know what is it that we should be concerned about and what shouldn't we be? And why does the left have its... its, its faith in the future so wrapped up right now in proving this sort of Trump-Russia thing. Mm. Let me say first, I'm flattered that I've achieved mama bear status, but I I do want to say that that I love Glenn Greenwald and Stephen Cohen's work. I've learned a lot from it, and I I think they've been... It's easy to mischaracterize them because they're they're very... They can be very kind of... um, They're very convinced of their views and they get attacked a lot, but I think they've been mischaracterized a little bit, but anyway, that's another story. My focus has been, uh, you know, for the last two years, has been the issue of of whether Russia swung the election or not, and whether Russia plays a kind of influence in American uh, politics that it's been suggested that it has, because you know, part of our big concern right now in this Russian investigation is finding out whether or not there was a conspiracy between Trump and Russia, and the big suggestion is that that uh, Trump is in cahoots with Russia and doing Putin's bidding. And it's been my view from the beginning that the evidence for that supposition is just not there. 
And the evidence for this claim that Russia is interfering with U.S. politics and, and uh, uh, warping our discourse and sowing discord is overblown. And I think it serves uh, political utility uh, for forces that I don't think are, are good for, the, for reasons and for interests that, that I don't think are good for the country. And I think it's a convergence of many of those interests, including the Democratic Party, which ran a you know one billion dollar campaign and lost to a uh, one of the worst candidates in history the and it's hard for them to understand how that how that could happen it's hard for them it's and it's and the and it's appealing for us to latch onto a narrative that's russia's fault because it's traumatizing it, it is traumatizing the fact that we have donald trump as our president you know it's it's we're living in that dystopia and so i think it makes there's an added appeal there like or, or there's an added uh, power to a theory that it's the uh, it's the fault of some like malevolent outside force because it's so weird and it's so horrible to to fathom, but I don't think it's it's grounded in the evidence and I think if you look at it, I think this what is pushing us towards this agenda of revering Robert Mueller and the intelligence officials like John Brennan who opposed Trump and believing that M- Mueller is going to save us. And seeing Russia as this uh, nefarious adversary that wants to destroy the country, I think if you look at who, if you look at the evidence for it, I don't think it's there. And if you look at the agenda that it serves, I don't think it's it's a positive one. And not that that doesn't mean supporting Trump at all. It just means um, looking at that who this might be serving. And I I don't think it's positive. I mean, the 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 story that the U.S. Worked really hard to break up the Soviet Union. Yeah. And succeeded in that. Yeah. Doing nice things and doing not nice things. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure we gave cookies to people that were going to break it up, and we gave bullets or whatever to people <laughs> who weren't. I'm sure we did very bad things. But but we 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 won on, on a certain level. We broke them up. And then, rightly or not, there's a tit for tat, though. I mean, the people who whose Soviet Union got broke up still wanted to then break up the American empire in in retaliation no well this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna invoke uh, Professor Stephen Cohen and say right. if, if you read the history that, that he's gone over and 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 many scholars of, of post Soviet Union Russia the fact is that I mean one of the key conditions for the dissolution of the Soviet Union that Gorbachev accepted was that the US under George HW Bush promised that NATO would not expand one inch to the east towards Russia. Like that was a, that was, now Gorbachev <laughs> to his, uh, I think, to uh, something he regrets now, didn't get that pledge in writing. Mm. But it was made, and there's a lot of scholarship around this, that NATO would not expand to the east. But that's, the opposite happened. So as soon as the Soviet Union broke up, under Clinton, Clinton expanded NATO massively, pretty much right up to Russia's borders. Well, yeah, we saw on, eight, on CNN, remember all the people in Romania holding little candles outside? There we go. There and, we go. And, and all the good happened. Yeah. And there's a, <laughs> and there's a, well, yeah, I mean, for good happened for some people. I mean, good especially happened. It was for, a playwright running the friggin' country there. Right. How could we not accept them into NATO? Yes. Yes. Well, it, you know, who really benefits from that has been especially arms manufacturers. And there's a great quote from the scholar named Richard Sakwa who says that NATO now exists to confront threats that it creates itself, which is, you know. Well, what do you do if there's no threat? Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you, they yeah. built all this stuff. They expanded eastward. And, and meanwhile, also, Clinton and, and their people got really involved in post-Soviet uh, Russia's economy. 
And basically, with their shock therapy reforms that we imposed on them, pl- gave it a, a worse crisis than the Great Depression. You know, and it's out of that that I think a lot of the animosity towards the West uh, comes from in Russia. And it's out of that, from the ashes of that, is how we get an authoritarian like Vladimir Putin, because the guy we installed and we propped up, Yeltsin, was a drunk and an embarrassment. Right. And uh, and presided over a lot of misery in the country. And it's that, you know, doesn't excuse anything that Russia does now. And it doesn't mean that Putin's a great guy. He's not. He's a right wing authoritarian. But it's that's a history that I think has been lost in in how we look at Russia now. So now we have our election in America, which we can look at through a lot of different lenses. And we really should go back and look at the the, the social, economic, and other realities that led to this uh, bizarre form of populism or whatever yep. whatever it is that's happening. But the certainly the liberal establishment figures puts a few pieces together, and it looks like, okay, they had this phone call. You know, Flynn had a phone call with someone in Russia, and then... Trump, you know, puts in the Republican platform this one, you know, they pull one plank about about Russia and it starts to look like something really bad happened here. It does, because the problem is to fully get all these stories, you have to go through all these petty details and you realize and it's part of why Russiagate persists is because it's like there's so much junk to wade through and so much and like so much to debunk that it's tiring. And so that Republican platform thing is a good example. If you look at what actually happened, well, first of all, just without even knowing any, without even knowing any of the details, uh, campaign platforms are meaningless. They don't they don't mean anything. But, you know, like every year there's a there's like a, a committee and at these convention, like every convention, there's a committee and they come up with a platform, but it doesn't matter. Right. So if the Democratic Party says we are pro pot. Yeah. Who cares? It doesn't I mean, mean that they're going to go vote for pot. Not at all. I mean, they might run on it and that's cool, but they're not, it doesn't, it's not binding on anything. So, but what happened was at the Republican convention, you, uh, there was a delegate from Texas uh, and they were drafting their, their platform. And, the, and when they got to Ukraine, uh, this delegate from Texas uh, proposed an amendment that said we want to send uh, weapons to Ukraine to help them fight the pro-Russian separatists. And uh, that amendment was discussed, and ultimately somebody from somebody from the Trump team came in and said, no, we don't want that, and it was watered down. So the actual story there is you have an amendment being rejected, which is a part of any platform process. Amendments right. are proposed, it was rejected. That got spun into this idea that the Trump campaign had intervened to remove an amendment and make it friendly to Russia. There's a few problems like right. with that narrative. And that it seemed that it was the only thing that they cared about. Exactly. There's a few problems with that story. First of all, the final draft of the Republican platform, when you compare it to the Democratic platform on the same topic of Ukraine, the Republican platform is still more hawkish than the Democratic one. Mm. And what Trump and is what what the Trump campaign, the language that they changed it to, that was basically what they changed it to was essentially the policy of Barack Obama at the time, because Barack Obama was under a lot of pressure in Washington from new cold warriors to send weapons to Ukraine to fight the Russian separatists. And Obama resisted a lot of pressure, including from his own people, and said, no, I don't want to further inflame a really dangerous situation because Ukraine is really bad. So the the amendment that in rejecting that amendment, the Trump campaign, whoever was there, was simply basically making 
their policy in line with what Obama's was. And still, the fine, if you read, if you compare the texts side by side, the Republican platform on Ukraine is still a lot more hawkish, is still more hawkish than the Democrats was. And by the way, and ultimately, in a, as an indication uh, of the fact that platforms don't matter, what did Trump do when he got to office? He actually, he actually bowed to pressure from his advisors and from people in D.C. And he sent military weapons to, to, to Ukraine to fight the Russian separatists, a move that Obama rejected. So on this issue, Trump ended up being more hawkish than Obama was. And so to me, it's an example of, in a bid to prove this Russiagate conspiracy theory that Trump is doing Putin's bidding, we take a, 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 an inconsequential story, focus on it, it becomes part of a narrative, and then we ignore what's actually happening. And what's actually happening on the in real life is is actually Trump on on this issue being more hawkish than Obama was. Or on the surface, it's convenient and it's convenient to think that maybe Trump, this nightmare we have, is just a Russian dupe and he's in league with another right wing nationalist, and that's why we have it. And if Robert Mueller can just find out the truth, then our nightmare is going to be over. Well, there is that that hope. I mean, it's funny for how anti paternalistic the left is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves one older, white-haired, serious, right. soft-spoken man. Yeah, that's right. Mueller. That's right. Doesn't Daddy have? Isn't he gonna just? Doesn't like Santa? He's gonna have some gift in that sack of his that they always say that on 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 in on the Times on MSNBC. It's everywhere. It's like well, and we still don't know what Mueller has because surely exactly. Mueller has more. Yeah, exactly. I think. That's you hit it right on the head. There is something psychological going on here. It, it's more than just the trauma of, of Trump's loss, or it's the trauma of Trump's loss plus Trump's, all of, Trump's win. Sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's Trump's trauma. win. Our loss. Yeah. Trump's win. Our loss. Um, uh, the, and I don't even mean the left's loss. When I say Trump's our loss, I don't think you mean our loss as the left. I think you mean, I mean our humanity. loss. Humanity's <laughs> yes, loss. Humanity's yeah. loss. Yeah, yeah. It, it's scary. And so, uh, and then we have a daddy figure like Robert Mueller. I mean. Uh, we are totally armchair psychoanalyzing right now, but I think it's totally on the money because I don't know how else to explain how else to explain this this being convinced that there is a conspiracy between Trump and Russia to what release emails on a certain schedule. Like even the theory of the case doesn't even make sense to me. Um, and this belief that and and, and this and like if you watch MSNBC and you look at where so much liberal media has gone, it's like this round the clock focus on the details of this case is if it's going to save us when we're not talking about what Trump is, Trump and the Republicans are actually doing. You know, there were bigger protests. There were bigger protests over the firing of Jeff Sessions than there were over the tax heist to the biggest upward transfer of wealth in U.S. history, these tax cuts that Trump, right. you know, bigger protests over Jeff Sessions being fired because we're, we're worried about the status of the Russia investigation. And right. Well, in that sense, if you're going to play the Trump genius card, he loves that everybody's talking about Mueller because Mueller doesn't have anything there. Yep. Everyone else is going to have to do little jail times and stuff. He'll be fine. And yep. he's going to get away Look at everything that he passes while this is going on. But Trump's contention and a lot of people's is that there is the deep state is doing this. Yes. And it's it's a little scary to think about. But I mean, for me, it starts. For me, it starts with The New York Times. So when I interact with real New York Times reporters, I feel like. If they're not necessarily smarter than me, at least they're more honest and more rigorous than me. <laughs> you know what I mean? They they are rigorous. They get 
extra sources. I mean, I speak off the cuff and get in weird sorts of trouble. You know, I'm, I'm not, maybe I'm closer to Trump than I am to a New York Times writer, but on a certain level I am. At least I'm honest though that yeah. I'm writing opinion. I'm, I'm doing cultural meta, I'm, I'm doing meta surveys and, and, and comp lit on, <laughs> on yeah. society. Yeah. You know, these guys are real. They have data. I, I've gone to their, their they've, they've spoken in big classes that I'm at. They're, they're legit. They went to journalism school. They wouldn't be fooled. This is where I subscribe to the Noam Chomsky view, which is that if you, to be in a position of, of privilege at one of these esteemed institutions, now, of course, this is not universal, but I think in many cases, to be in a, in a, in a privileged position where you're, giving people the you know when you're writing the dom the the sort of front page new york times story on the paper of record the paper of record you to get in the position you you will have had to have internalized the uh the prejudices and the and the and, and the narratives of of privilege because otherwise you wouldn't be there and the the narratives of privilege in in this case are what that government is good well or? no see like it's tricky because the thing is so I mean, we have our reasons for opposing Donald Trump, but there are people in the elite who oppose Donald Trump, but not for the same reasons that I think average, decent people do. You know, I think they oppose Donald Trump because they think they see him as like a brutish buffoon, which he is, and which makes him an inefficient manager of the global American empire. And and the fact is, he ran his campaign, even though I think it was all a con. He said some things that really went against the the bipartisan foreign policy consensus. He talked Which is that America should go it alone and and become a country again and stop running things and stop stop intervening. He criticized the interventions in Libya and Syria, and and it's true that he recently fulfilled one of his pre pledges actually in Syria by by starting the withdrawal of troops. And there are people, there are neocons in Washington who hated that. They, you know, he was he and isn't was, that almost a George McGovern like line that he was. Falling? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, and 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 you can say the same thing about the working class too. He was actually speaking about working class pain, and he, you know, like now it was a con, but right. he was tapped into it, and he was at least acknowledging it, and that was, I think, intolerable to certain members of the elite, who who then ended up opposing him for different reasons, and I think are justified. And so, to on the question of the deep state, I don't use the term deep state because I don't like. It's just I don't believe in it. But I do think there are people in the national security establishment who uh, have their own interests and who ha are in a position to implement what they what they see as legitimate goals. So, you know, when Obama tried to work with the Russians in Syria, people in the Pentagon ruined that in the fall of 2016, right after John Kerry and Obama had announced a cooperation with with Russia inside Syria to fight ISIS, there was an incident where uh, the U.S. military uh, got into a firefight with Syrian troops and killed a bunch of them. Right, and you know, there's a lot of evidence for the fact that that was not an accident. And they killed Russians along with. And they killed yeah. Russians too, and that ended the U.S.-Russian cooperation. And the fact is, you know, when Trump was campaigning, he was saying he wanted to end the program that the CIA was running in Syria, a really cynical program uh, that was arming. Uh, "Quote unquote rebels," but a lot of that the money ended up being getting to the hands of Al Qaeda affiliated people. And John Brennan, who was the head of the CIA at the time, he that was his baby. He was really into that. And I think it's for reasons like that that not because John Brennan has a lot of integrity and he's like he he, he believes in human rights. It's for reasons like that that I think you now see people like him hating Donald Trump. And that's an example to me of I think the 
deep state, whatever you want to call it, why they have animosity towards Trump that is not for woke, not not, not, woke, not for woke reasons. And in the extent to the extent there is a deep state, they are in, sometimes in a position to implement their goals. And the case of Flynn is an example of that because somebody from the intelligence community leaked the fact that he was speaking to the Russian ambassador, which is a, to leak that is really illegal. You're you're and you're exposing the fact that you've been wiretapping the Russian ambassador to the U.S. Right. Like you don't do that. And but now, I mean, it's I'm not mad that someone did it because it's you know I think it's great to have. They do Merkel too. I mean, sure, sure, and and it's great to know about this. But that was a case of somebody inside the U, the U.S. intelligence community uh, leaking this because I think they wanted to undermine whatever they thought Trump and the uh, Trump was going to do with Russia, which I think personally has been overblown and how much they think Trump was actually going to do. But but that was a case where you have someone powerful leaking that for a political purpose. I mean, the thing. The thing I, I feel like that, that Russiagate camouflages yep. is, and because uh, on a certain level, even if it's all true, my point has always been, so what? Yep. You know, my point has always been, yeah, but if we're going to be idiots and buy into conspiracy theories and trust our, ex- our experience of one another less mm-hmm. than we trust the tweet from God knows where, <laughs> then that's a bigger problem. Yes. That it's us, not them. I don't care yeah. where the tweet came from. And that's yeah. always been since the beginning with media virus. I always kept telling marketers even, it's not your friggin' virus. It's the cultural immune response that's gonna make it work yep. or not. So I don't, it's, you, you're idiots. Yep. Um, you know, and it's back to like homeopathy versus allopathic medicine or vitalism. You know, huh. I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't think you, you don't attack the disease. You, yes. you 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 strengthen the person That's if, you, right. if at all possible. Yeah. So, but that aside, there's something really awful going on, and I don't know exactly how to think about it or frame the awfulness. So, what it seems to me, it's not that Russia is taking over America through a puppet president, but that some kind of somewhat perhaps corrupt statecraft government is being replaced by a very corrupt kind of mob craft government. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the like I understand that things have always been corrupt on some level. And it's not even the corruption, it's the it's the wow, what if Tony Soprano were president? It kind of feels like that's what we're playing with. Yeah. It, yeah. I hear you. I see. This is where I get called the Trump apologist sometimes because I don't think that. I mean, listen. Trump is 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 a uniquely. It's dista- like Harvey Weinstein were yeah, president. No, he's a, he's, you a, know? he's a uniquely distasteful per- person. Distasteful person. Right. He's a misogynist. He's groped all these women. I mean, he's awful and he's a racist. I mean, so it's like, but in terms of the institutional evil, I I I see more continuity there than I think. But there is a there there's something there is something awful happening. Mm-hmm. And as I see it, blaming Russia for everything that's going on is distracting us from what we may what may actually be going on and what we could actually do something about. I totally agree. And what do you think is going on here? Is is it that that we're moving from I feel like we're moving from a world that's sort of driven by these these kind of democratic parliamentary states mm. to this more Trump Erdogan Putin uh, uh, deal making thuggery. 
I, I'm only concerned about making Trump the problem. See, what I see is that what's going on right now is the Republicans who, as Noam Chomsky says, have, have ceased being a political party. They're just dedicated to serving the rich and to destroying human civilization. Uh, I see them going through with their agenda and Trump playing the role instead of tr instead of Trump instead of Trump um, doing a lot of the wheeling and dealing himself, just being a buffoon and a clown and distracting everybody with his tweets and going on Fox News and and basically just sucking up all the attention. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, the Republicans, you know, as they just did for the last two years with the control of Congress, implementing their awful agenda just across the board. Like these last two years have been terrible. And I think they've been even worse than we realize because we've been so focused on what Trump has been saying publicly. But like the tax cuts, uh, the further decimation of Obamacare, pulling out of the Paris Accords. I mean, were there even any protests over the Paris Accords? Not At least not big ones that I can remember. I mean, so all, all these just like what I think. So like what I see is the big danger is like is Trump distracting everyone and then behind the scenes, this radical party or if you can even call them a political party now, uh, this the, this cabal called the Republicans going through with Paul Ryan, uh, although he's now gone, pushing through their just their like far right agenda, and yeah, I mean, on a on a political level, I, I do think people like Trump and Duterte and this new president in Brazil, Bolsonaro, like they're they're they are certainly sucking up a lot of the political discontent there is, and, and they're channeling it into, into far-right nationalism, into demonizing uh, you know, minorities, and that's a scary global trend. But in terms of the people who are carrying out the, poli who, are, who are designing the policies, that to me is the same. It's, it's neocons, and it's, uh, the, and, it's the, and it's the Koch brothers. It's their policies that are getting enacted. And then the way to stop those from happening seems it's a little tricky. I mean, when I'm when I'm having really bad thoughts, I'm thinking, well, <laughs> will voting even matter? I mean, if if they're this if they're this ruthless and care this little about the people and democracy and all that, then they would do everything in their power to to make the votes turn out the way. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that the, the electoral system itself could be undermined? I'm not worried about that yet. I'm just not. I mean, mm -hmm. like, given given where history has been before, and given given what it takes to put in fascism, I don't think we're actually there. Like, I I think that the I think that the institutions here are still strong. I, I think the problem is we've given so many people every incentive to not engage with the political system because we've because even uh, unfortunately, like the Democrats have turned away from labor unions, turned away from working people. And be you know under Clinton and I think Obama continued it continued it became the party of like the coastal uh, you know cosmopolitan elite and I just don't think that's a way to to win elections I think as the 2016 election proved so I mean what I'm worried about is are those of us who consider ourselves on the left and even in, in the center um, that. There's been under Clinton and Obama this like abandonment of, of real progressive politics and and sort of thinking that like, you know, fancy slogans from Obama like, you know, uh, about hope and change is, is going to be enough to win people and inspire and figure and, or and change anything. I mean, yeah. and that's I mean, yeah, he did get some some modicum of health care bill passed. But, you know, when when he was elected, the the economic opportunity was reform and instead it became bailout. Totally. I think he's a real example of just how empty 
uh, that sort of like neoliberal approach is. I mean, he he did achieve like the uh, like Obamacare was an achievement. It got people health care. But it was still trying to do it within this like ridiculous for profit system. And look what happened because it's so uh, uh, it's so like patchwork. It's so like to it, kludge, it, it, yeah. It's, yeah, it, it's it, it, it was easily it was easily dismantled. Whereas if Obama had put his political capital behind like universal health care, as now Demo- many Democrats are getting behind, I don't think tr- Trump and the Republicans could have been done it so easily. You know, right. And, it would be like undoing Social Security versus exactly. undoing this insurance company exactly. payoff. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Then where would, where do you suggest d- Democrats go at this point? In other words, if they're not that you know necessarily, but it feels like there's sort of two Democratic parties kind of uh, uh, putting themselves forward. There's this kind of Biden-like, uh, uh, and Biden's not a, quite a Clinton, but, you know, just go the, the, pretty the, close. That, yeah, but the <laughs> idea, some Democrats would say, look, the thing we got to do is win, 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 no matter what, yeah. get Trump out of there, and we're going to do that more easily with someone who looks kind of centrist, old boy, you know, Biden, a working guy, yeah, you know, the macho beer can crusher yeah. could get behind Biden in a way that if um, who's the, the the young congresswoman from uh, New York from the Bronx? Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, let's say Cortez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She runs yeah. for president. Um, she's not old enough, I guess, legally. But if she did, <laughs> I mean, she'd get all the excitement of all the Bernie people. Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah. See, and I don't want to pretend like, you know, the answer is just to like have like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez across the country because it's not going to work everywhere. Like it worked here in New York in a working class neighborhood of New York. Which is what she says, too. Totally. And and totally. So, you know, but at the same time, you know, what I what I know doesn't work is the Clinton Obama approach. I think that was like I think that the fact that Donald Trump, a former reality TV host, won that election, I think that should have put the neoliberal approach to bed for good because it's just it's you know clinton you know like 90 percent of her of her negative ads were just about trump there wasn't there wasn't much of a policy message the left is in a bind if it's going to have neoliberal candidates because then what are we doing we're doing lip service to labor yep exactly but we're perpetrating the world trade organization exactly exactly and then you have someone like trump coming in even if he doesn't mean anything he doesn't it's not like trump was going to be pro-worker but he 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 at least is speaking the language and there were enough people unfortunately in 2016 who are willing to just say you know forget it like why not like, right you know let's do it and, and it feels like the logic of trump you know which is almost i know and i trace it back to the smith munt act which was this act that said that you're allowed to do propaganda on foreign countries, but not on America. (laughs) And the reason they did that was because the propaganda that we were sending to Europe made America look like a, like, an America that most Americans didn't agree with, right. you know, too progressive and European and huh. gay and artsy and all that. <laughs> but I'm thinking that what Trump is kind of saying with this wall, say, is look, five billion is not a, not a lot. Give me the friggin' wall. Yeah. Then we could do whatever immigration policy we want because all the stupid people will say, oh, look, they built a wall. It's keeping out the Mexicans. Just give them the wall and then we can, I'll let you have your dreamer people. Let you do whatever you want. Yeah. Just put a wall, and my, all my stupid followers will feel relieved. That's why with jobs, give me fifty jobs from the carrier air conditioning mm-hmm. company, mm-hmm. and then we can still send everything you want overseas. Exactly. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and even then, by the way, carrier st- still going to close and and sh- you know <laughs> yeah, exactly after a year or two. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean? I feel like on some level, maybe that's what he's saying is just give me these show pieces yeah. and we can do whatever we want behind the scenes. Yeah. And, the, you know, but I just 
Uh, see, the problem is like like the leftist in me says you can't cater to that, and you no, you, and, and you, you shouldn't. And, you know, and, and the fact is the you know like the the problem with immigration is it, like everything we've let the right appropriate the debate. You know, and the problem is Democrats have taken part of that. So you know, yeah. you know, like Trump can point out that you know uh, like not too long ago Democrats were voting for pretty much the exact same thing he's proposing now, except they called it a, a fence. Right. You know. And the, he can point out, as he does, that Obama was the deporter in chief. Obama deported more people than he did. And um, the reason why it's so hard to get Democrats to like to reverse that legacy is because they've they've attached themselves to neoliberalism. And you know, after pursuing a policy where you you know embrace NAFTA and you uh, ship jobs to Mexico. And, you know, it's sort of predicated on, like, keeping wages low in, in, in these foreign countries. And it was Obama that supported a coup in Honduras. Um, you know, it's like... It, it, right. So then you get Obama is closer to Reagan. <laughs> yeah. And and Trump, in some ways, is closer to uh, uh, McGovern. In certain ways. I mean... Or although, a Gepard. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, although McGovern was not... I mean, I wasn't I wasn't around when McGovern... But he, he, I don't think he had any racist no. tropes, did he? No, 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 okay, he yeah, did, yeah, no yeah. he did. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. a yeah. white nationalist. Yeah. But uh, Trump says... Trump's got Kanye. Trump so. does have Kanye. Trump does have <laughs> Kanye. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it's just... I... Uh, people... Like, see, like, I think a lot about Obama. And, you know, as inspiring as he is in his successfully as he is i think he's been a real i think overall i think he's bad news and here's why it's because no one has the kind of charm and political gift that he does i think he kind of i think he i think because he was so good and so charismatic and also because he opposed the iraq war right. which helped him beat hillary in the primary but i i think I, except for obama democrats have not had that much success over the last 20 years you know gore lost uh Kerry lost you know, like we know the figures at the st at the national wide level, like over a thousand statewide seats Democrats have lost, and of course, part of that is gerrymandering and Republicans being so just like shady and and, and nefarious. But I mean, the fact is that this the neoliberal third way brand it just is not. I mean, too many people are hurting in the middle of the country, and there's only so much lofty rhetoric you can say before people say, you know, forget it. I'm going to go. Yeah, the guy is like a brute racist, but. He's talking about he's talking about bringing my jobs back. So, you know, I'm going to go with him. So if we're here, if we're saying that, OK, the left has either intentionally or through psychological weakness turned Russia into a bigger bogeyman than they are in order to justify all sorts of anti-Trump rhetoric and mm -hmm. investigations and all, then doesn't that, unfortunately, help justify the paranoia about, say, climate change science itself. So, you know, the as I as I understand it, the 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 Trumpian or even the dark webian uh, uh, argument against climate change is that it's being used as the bogeyman of neoliberalism. Yeah. That <laughs> this is why you oh the only argument left. For some global order or coordination is oh climate change that the world has to yes. all these we have to act, act together. If there was no climate change, then we could just be nationalist, really, just hang <laughs> out and you know yeah, floods and things are going to get other people, but at least we'll be fine. I mean my, I mean look like my <laughs> my my problem with that is one of them is grounded in evidence, and one of them isn't. You know I think climate change is grounded in fact. If you look at the details of Russia Gate, 
as I've been doing, you know, like I write for the Nation magazine and I, I, you know, the problem is it takes forever to go through. And so I don't blame people for thinking otherwise, but I don't think there's evidence there for a Trump-Russia conspiracy. But that's what the <laughs> Times is for. The New York I Times know. is for that. I pay them. <laughs> I know. I pay for my prescription. <laughs> that's what I call it. It is your prescription. My it prescription. Is. Yes. Because they are real journalists who went to Columbia Journalism School and yeah. doing the hard work and getting shot at yeah. and doing all those things and running around. Didn't you see these movies? Yeah. These movies with Meryl Streep running the Washington Post yes, and they're yes. up at night and they're yes. running around and, yeah. and Robert Redford in the parking lot yeah. with the bad guys. Yeah. yeah. But look, I mean, you know, this is where I don't think Russiagate, you know, <laughs> uh, sticks out for forever. The New York Times has been carrying water for these. T- the New York Times helped give us the help sell us the Iraq war. You know, uh, the, 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 there wasn't like that, that like that, like cantankerous adversarial adversarial reporting for the Iraq war. That was them telling us about aluminum tubes and, right. and about Saddam's ties to Al-Qaeda and going back to the Vietnam War. Well, because Colin Powell was, was reporting. Exactly. I mean, we believed him. Exactly, because we're really, we really want to believe people. It's kind of sweet, you know? We, we, really want to, we, really, we really want to trust people, but... We do, especially if they're like, you know, honorable generals yes. and not... Yeah, yeah, but they're not. And they, and they you know, <laughs> some of them are really good marketers, like, you know, and Colin Powell has branded himself as being having integrity. And it's true that behind the scenes, he was uncomfortable with the intelligence he was right. getting about Iraq. And he didn't want to deliver that speech, but he did deliver the speech, right. you know, and uh, a soldier. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, so Russiagate is not the first time where I think the New York institutions like the New York Times is as much as they do great work on, on you know, obviously, I mean, how can they not? They're they they're the New York Times. But on key issues where elites have gone a certain way, um, I think you just there's a deficit in in critical thinking, and I think Russiagate is a very good example of that. I mean, luckily it's not like climate change, which is an existential issue. I mean, the fact that we all think that Trump is a is like a Kremlin operative, it's not going to like, you know. I mean, it's I think it's wasted everyone's time. Right. It's you know, it, it's not the end of the world that. If we've gotten it like this story wrong with climate change, though, if we ignore that and we keep downplaying that, I mean, we're obviously we die. We die. Yeah. And my problem is by keeping our focus on things like Russiagate, we're taking our eye off of the actual existential issues. You know, so, for example, when the intergovernmental panel on climate change report came out recently saying we have like 20 years that was in the news cycle for what like a couple of weeks i know you know and now it's gone you know, like, they said talk- we had 20 years and that's like <laughs> assuming we reverse course yeah. utterly and completely and change everything about the way we run our society we could maybe last another couple of decades yeah yeah so what does it tell us about ourselves we're more commit so we're, we're more committed to what to just feeling better and in the moment to short-term relief and to and to being excited by this idea that trump is going to go down because of robert Mueller than we are to like really literally <laughs> surviving it's well I mean, if you go back to Becker and denial of death and stuff like that, mm. if climate change is a community version of what we're all facing individually, yeah. which is this thing at the end that we're trying not to think about, yeah. then I think we're applying all of the same personal psychological filters and, and rationalization onto species extinction that we do onto individual Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Death. Yeah. So we just need louder and louder distractions. So it's a form of it. so it's a form of just collect. It, it's a way of of abetting the collective denial. It's yeah. like so we're going to latch on to things that abet denial, right? Unless someone is going to, and this is where guys like George Monbiot are really interesting to me 
the the people who are saying you know we need different narratives we need a we need a positive narrative on climate change or mm -hmm. no one's going to jump in mm -hmm. here's how the world gets clean again and fresh again and wonderful and mm -hmm. the problem with someone like him though the, the, this, this is where my mind gets blown because he will advocate for nuclear power Right, along with all those, you know, yeah. Freeman Dyson kind of people. Yeah, and I'm not smart enough in science to know what the answer is, but I just know that I hear nuclear and I'm just, you know, my, my alarm bells go off. Right, but they think that's because we've been programmed by our 1980s nuclear disaster stuff. Right, right. I know, they're all saying it's the easiest, bestest thing, but I think there's like some really bad stuff. <laughs> I think so too. You know, that's the thing, it's just another thing I'm worried about is assuming, you know, society breaks down completely. Right. And let's just say enough of us figure out how to make things by hand and we make little candles and grow alfalfa and whatever so we can survive on our little beautiful communitarian relocalized farms. We're still going to have these giant unpowered nuclear power plants eventually just melting down and blowing up and killing us all anyway. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> but then George Mambio says that, that it's fine. So, you know, I, I like. You know, it's 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 fascinating to me just to observe that strain in the environmental movement because a lot of people are really convinced by it, and you know, people who I take seriously, even even James Hansen, hmm. um, the climate scientist. You know, so it's you know, and somehow the idea of using less energy just doesn't enter into things. Right. Well, that speaks to uh, a society that that is really addicted to consumption and and feels sort of validated and and defined by consuming. Right. And I and and. If we're going to trace it back, though, our addiction to consumption was imposed by television. Hmm. It was planted by television in order to support post-war industrial hmm. American expansion. Hmm. Right? How do we get people to consume more? People didn't need stuff. They didn't want all that stuff. Hmm. Yeah. So if it, was, if it was baked in, we should be able to bake it out. That's the problem. Things are really baked in. And Russiagate, taking it back, that is a good example of that. Like, you know... Um, for me to say this things I've been saying about how I don't think the evidence is there for a Trump-Russia conspiracy, I don't think Russia is the evil adversary that's, that it's painted out to be, it's it's hard to, it's getting increasingly harder to say that for me in liberal spaces and, and not sound like I'm a Trump or a Russia apologist. Right. It's weird. Well, the other way to argue it, though, which, which satisfies them, yeah. is to say, look, part of Russia's objective yeah. is to get us talking about them as if they were a big bad adversary right when they're really they're smaller than italy so don't don't enable them don't enable russia by talking about them. right okay all right that that's the real propaganda here <laughs> yes yeah 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 my problem is i don't see i don't accept that presumption that russia has this goal to destroy the west you know like i don't to me it's it's a way to justify a lot of, a lot of think tanks uh, salaries but I, you know well it, he's it, happy <laughs> though putin is happy that we're all internally divided and screwed up and freaking out i wouldn't pretend to know what his what his goal honestly like i like you don't hang out with him i don't hang out with him <laughs> and i resist this this it's really easy to come up with a cartoon idea of of official villains you know so like saddam was this cartoon you know like i mean saddam was an awful human being but he became the new hitler and every time we right. have a villain they're the new hitler and i just I, right i mean noriega just how many people do you have that you're allowed to abuse exactly yeah exactly you know, you could look at any any Jersey Mafia boss the same way. They just have fewer soldiers and victims. Exactly. 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 So you're writing a book now? Yes. Are you enjoying it? No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I don't know how you've done it. 
That's why I did 20. That's why I'm stopping. Uh, it's Team Human, the last book. It's okay. No one, you know, no one buys books anyway. Cool. <laughs> but so what's it going to be about, do you think? Well, it's, it's about how we got Trump and Russiagate. Uh, and the, the working title is The Privilege Racket. And it's basically arguing that that Trump's election was a um, result of a system that has catered to privilege, uh, has uh, has reinforced powerful interests above all else, and Trump came along and painted himself falsely as a counter to that, as someone who's going to stop that. And I think that's what we got Trump from. And then the reaction to Trump from privileged sectors who felt threatened by him. And, you know, from Democrats who need an excuse for losing to the uh, foreign policy establishment that did not want to hear about having better relations with Russia because that threatens arms sales, that threatens the uh, lavish funding that uh, institutions like the Atlantic Council get to promote basically war with Russia. All these converged into a resistance, into a resistance narrative to Trump that ultimately serves with the interests of protecting privilege, not actually being a real resistance. And I'm looking at that dynamic, not just in those situations, but 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 those are the starting points for it, and just how basically how our political discourse is shaped by this the imperative of protecting privilege, and it's a racket in the sense that it's uh, it's self-perpetuating and it's there to protect itself, and it's a racket also in the sense that it creates distractions from real issues like Russiagate, um, which prevent us, I think, from taking on what Trump and the Republicans are actually doing and confronting all the many other serious problems that this country has, not hacked emails and, and Russian memes. I mean, privilege is an interesting, it's an interesting term, right? Because a lot of times it's just used, oh, well, you're a white male, so you're privileged. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you mean it in, the, in, in more economic, yes. more economic or classist terms. Yeah. I mean, and it is interesting to me that I'll speak with people, well-meaning leftist upper middle class yeah. people, and they want to help inner city people or projects people or black people right up until the point where Johnny is going to have a different sort of competition getting into Wesleyan now. Exactly right. Because yeah. the yeah. kids from the Bronx just got yeah, you know exactly right. as good an... Yeah. Why did I move to this neighborhood? Why did I send yeah. my kid to this school yeah. if not to give him an advantage over all those kids in the Bronx? Yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. And and that's when you when you went like it's this dynamic sort of ruins everything. And it I, I think it's what keeps us from moving forward as a society because ultimately people are too bought into this idea of 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 being sort of validated by by privilege and sort of like and taking take taking privilege and being in a place like Wesleyan as being as like that conferring a kind of like legitimacy that otherwise is not there and the right. and this rush to be a part of that is i think ultimately um bringing us down because it's creating suffering that we're blind to and that we're not willing to fix and take on because we feel as if it hurts our own interests right well me i mean i was a i was a a jewish public school kid yeah all i wanted to do was get into harvard princeton or yale yeah you know because somehow that meant yeah and princeton of course was the most of them because that was the waspiest yes. uh, yeah. of them all and i go yeah. there and i'm like oh my god <laughs> this yeah. is crazy yeah. yeah you know i became i radicalized me but i realized what i'd been chasing yeah you know but the republicans would say well 
Democrats, at least we're honest here. Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying you want to help all these inner city kids have all the opportunities. When push comes to shove, you want your kid to have preferential treatment. That's right. At least we Republicans are saying it's a meritocracy. Earn the money to get in. And if you don't have it, oh, you're a loser. Yes. And I think it's that liberal inauthenticity that I think a lot of people rebelled against in 2016. Right. I think they finally said, like, the jig is up. Like, we see you as inauthentic. And Trump had this air of being honest and straight shooting. And that always plays well in, in politics when you when you can fool people into thinking that you're like, you shoot from the hip and you right. say what's on your but mind. But the election aside then, how do we deal with, and this is this is real human beings who mean well, yeah. are, are yet are middle class or upper middle class are driven to do well by their kids. Yeah. So you even take that one example. A kid wants their the the the, the parent wants their kid to get into Wesleyan. Yeah. And we have to almost retrain what success means to that person. I think we do, based on the fact that we're we're not in the same America we used to be, you know. And there's just it's funny. I read Alyssa Court's book on mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, what's it called? I'm um, squeezed. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it on the one hand, I, I'm totally for its thesis, which is that the middle class is now squeezed in a way that they weren't before. Yeah. But underneath it is the kind of argument I was kind of accusing uh, David Sachs of before, which is this kind of an upper middle class argument of, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It used to be if you worked hard enough in high school to get into like an Ivy League school yeah. and then you pretty and then you work then you were supposed to be okay yeah. and now you can work and get into a good school and get good grades doesn't matter and you still don't get a job yeah. you still don't yeah you're screwed yeah. you're squeezed yeah. and it's almost as if the outrage is more about well wait a minute i did all the things i'm supposed to do to maintain my privilege yeah yeah and they're not working the signifiers of privilege are no longer functioning yeah 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 but what if we is it but what if the democratic party was actually willing to uh you know be as sort of like progressive as uh roosevelt was you know like like bernie sanders is i mean he's deemed a radical now but actually his policies would not have been out of the ordinary even among some Republicans back in the 50s. It's just right. like we've gone so neoliberal. So what if we're actually willing to tax, to take on Wall Street, to not you know, not do as Obama did, which is basically fill his cabinet with Clinton people, people who-, who Or built, Goldman Sachs people. Or, yeah. or Goldman Sachs people. You know, if we're actually willing to take them on and actually adopt real progressive policies and, and, and own that and not be afraid of being, and of not being afraid of being wealth redistributors and, and, and giving and advocating single payer healthcare. Like what if we could actually authentically stand in that? Uh, I think, I don't think people are going to do that until they're poor enough to benefit from it. I think that's right. You know, and you know, Chomsky likes to point to the fact that if the two poorest countries of this hemisphere, Bolivia and Haiti, if they could elect popular progressive governments, as they both did, Evo Morales and John Bertrand Aristide mm-hmm. in the early 90s, if they can do it there, then why, th- then we can do it here too. But my response to that is, has always been, well, the reason they were able to do it is because they were so miserable and poor that things got so dire that they had no other choice. Right. It's, it's a very cynical view, but it's also all of us who are middle class are just trying to maintain that middle class lifestyle and in, it, it leaves no time for real serious for a lot of us right for real serious political no, organization if you pay your journalists well yeah 
you're going to get good coverage. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and when journalists yeah. are, are as poor as the rest of everybody. Exactly. And they're going to start arguing for progressive values. Exactly. I, I, unfortunately, I just think that's how it is. I think we're all, too, you know, we're all too, you know. Self-interested? Yes. And, and, and too many of us, especially in media, are too kind of like middle to upper class. And we're trying to chase that and, and preserve it. And we're just not going to. It's the, the the life incentive, even though we're facing literally existential peril uh, from climate change, right. it's it's still not there for enough of us to devote to sacrifice ourselves in the way that it takes. I think to to really to really change things as as previous political movements have right. done, which is why we have to somehow stop seeing it as self sacrifice. Right. In other words, oh, so you can't yeah. afford Wesleyan for your kid because yeah. you're going to write for the Nation instead of the New York <laughs> Times. Yeah. All yeah. right, so where are they going to go? So can they go to, can you still get them into SUNY uh, uh, yeah. uh, New Paltz? Yeah, yeah. I know some good teachers there. Hey, me too. Yeah. You know, so yeah, yeah Sarah Lawrence is out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I would love from your mouth to God's ears, like, uh, you know, I, I, I would love if, if that mentality could, could you know, not, not that that would solve problems, but it's like in terms of our, you know, it like we need to, uh, uh, humble ourselves i think uh, like on the left more right. than we are and to give up this fantasy of having it all of being like you know that like this this like liberal dream we have of like being able to write for the for like, like for the nation and 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 still and have a house in the and, and, yeah, it's not you know like <laughs> I, i've personally given all that up you know and uh i'm cool with living in an apartment and i well, feel very right you know. and then but you start to i mean and that was my whole team humany thing you know you go i went to rome when i was like 14. Yeah. And at night in Rome, it's like the families are out in the streets. Sure. There's like a like three or four different generations out there at once. Imagine guys that. coming on to girls, yeah. little kids throwing <laughs> caps down on the, the grandmothers yeah. yelling at them, yeah. you know, businessmen coming home from work. And I was just like, what is this utopia yeah. in which I found myself? And these were not wealthy people. Yeah. This was just a little society getting on. And it's like, oh, my God, the whole, you know, suburban liberal dream. You know, the idea of that, that moving to Chappaqua, mm, you know, mm -hmm. and having a private server in your basement, you know, is is the goal. <laughs> yeah, and, and especially if you I mean, are these people happy? Like, are the Clintons happy people? I mean, it's oh. it's easy to psychoanalyze them, you know, and uh, you know I don't. Well, and they're and they're not a terrific stand-in for Fair, upper yeah. middle class journalists or or, yeah, or yeah. progressives, but yeah. but it is it's a society of people who are not yeah. who are who are building bigger hedges to insulate themselves from yeah. their neighbors, yeah, you know, rather than than have this is the other problem. But none of the people who are complaining about it have this problem, but. A majority of American families now are one health crisis, one yeah, yeah. fire, one flood away from destitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the question for a political organization like the Democrats is do they want to harness that that precarity into something, you know, that can solve people's problems and sort of um, leverage the, the a collective power, uh, a.k.a. just be democratic towards positive social change or do they or want to do they have to accept the fact that they do not believe their policies are good enough to alleviate that precarity without putting themselves in precarity of their own or accepting or, or maybe <laughs> redefining to them what precarity for them is it just means maybe being a little bit less rich you know like which sounds fine to me you know? right precarity right exactly it's like oh yeah. you're gonna drive a used car yeah or yeah yeah so you're going to do all this in your book? 
Well, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be good. If it, people it, could just read it. If it's like, here's a book for privileged people to read exactly. to deprogram them of their probably denial of death driven yeah. attachment to their privilege. You've given me some really good ideas for it. Uh, and, and I do, you know, that, that is the idea. Like, I do want to, like, because writing just, writing the facts and debunking, you know, popular narratives is not enough. We, we all have to look at how we approach life and how we approach politics and what, what, what we're in it for, you know. And also what, you know, how do we define uh, satisfaction in life? And, you know, it's something... I'm always struggling with, but unfortunately, this culture, especially this American culture, I'm from Canada, so it's a you know I have a bit more humility, like there's a bit more of just like a humility ingrained into society. It's not as capitalist. It's still capitalist, but it's not as capitalist. Right. Not everything there it's is capitalist with good manners. It's capitalist with really, really, really <laughs> incredible manners. Possibly because you know what it is. Possibly because there's just way less people, so right. there, there's just more. There's just more to go around, right. you know, and and there's there's less competition. But you know, I um. Uh, like in, in, until until we unless we redefine what makes us happy and content, maybe that is what's going to send us off to extinction. You know, but uh, at the same time, I don't want to pretend like you know, uh, like history is changed by concepts and good ideas. Sometimes just things happen as they happen, and you know, it, it's up to like those of us who have our sense of what the truth is. We can do our best to interpret it in a way, but maybe things are just going to go the way they're going to go. You know. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Aaron J. Mate. And uh, I also Twitter? write... Twitter? That's the way that... Oh, I guess they'll get links to things that you're writing. Yeah. Uh, if they I don't have a website there. yet. And, and, and I'm also, I also write at The Nation magazine. Yeah. I mean, that's where you can find the most stuff. You do yeah. a, a search for Aaron Mate at, 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 uh, when you're on The Nation. Yeah. And that's a great publication to support right now because it's one of the only places it's giving kind of... I would say relatively equal voice to kind of a lot of sides of this. You know, they 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 don't they give voice to the the panicking Russiagate people as well as to you. They totally do, you know? and, and I really appreciate that. And I think it, it's a great way to let people decide for themselves and and to read all the arguments. And you know, I mean, the Nation's a liberal magazine, and so liberal America right now, a, a lot of it has bought into the the Russiagate thing. So they have to represent that, and it's good. Um, and I just really appreciate that I get the space there to present my point of view and to argue for why I don't think uh, the the Trump Russia thing is what it seems, and how I think it actually the obsession with it serves a a dangerous agenda that ultimately helped the Trump agenda. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Nation columnist Aaron Mate. You can read more of his work at thenation.com. Team Human is supported entirely by listeners. You can support the show by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. My monologues are all posted as essays on Medium, where you can also find all of our episodes. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. Our associate producer is Josh Chaptelin, and our partner in crime is Luke Robert Mason of Virtual Futures. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peace.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 